You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. The sound you're hearing is spring beginning. The song of the robin. And soon enough come the sparrows. And the terns. Until, by summer, a cacophony of martins and warblers and herons. Do herons sing? A very different set of bird calls dominate fall. Leading to... Winter. A world practically bereft of birds. Well, almost. Some cardinals and other stragglers. Pigeons. But I digress. The silent dead of winter begs the question. Where do all the birds go? This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Why Do Birds Suddenly Disappear? They fly south. They fly south. That's the answer. Birds fly south for the winter. Thank you for listening to The Constant. Join us again next week when we'll be asking, are thumbs useful for holding things? Hold on, hold on. A quick follow-up. How do you know? About the birds. I, I, I know why you think you know. You see geese flying south, ta-da, but do you? Have you ever checked? Because a lot of times, if you check, you'll notice that they're flying southeast, or east, or west, or even north a little bit. I mean, they don't just fly straight down all day until they get tired and then just land any old place. And hey, while we're at it, how far exactly have you ever tracked a flock of geese traveling? A couple of miles, maybe? Besides, what do geese have to do with sparrows and terns and warblers and herons? Of course we know the answer to the question. But we shouldn't mistake that for meaning that the answer was obvious. We know because we have records of observations carefully collected, because we're in communication with people throughout the entire world and transcontinental travel and radio transmitters, documentary film crews and, I, I don't know, ultralight aircraft. For thousands of years, people grappled with the question without the aid of those things. 
And looking back at the answers they concocted, it's tempting to laugh. So remember, it's not obvious. Ask yourself what you would have believed. And, and then go ahead and laugh. We don't have much of an idea what people thought happened to birds early on. The Old Testament twice references birds going away in the winter, but it doesn't offer up any explanation of why or where. It isn't until the Iliad that we get a hint of what ancient people were thinking. In it, Homer remarks about cranes flying to southern Africa to do battle with pygmies. But he doesn't bother to expand upon that. In fact, he mentions it pretty offhandedly as a simile for the ferocity of the battle at Troy, which seems to indicate that this idea, whatever exactly it was, was already in popular circulation at the time. Fast forward 800 years to around 70 AD, and there's Pliny the Elder, the premier historian of the time, who still believes in Homer's crane-pygmy war idea and gives us more details on the subject. He says that for three months out of the year, the pygmies eat nothing but crane eggs, lest they be overrun during the annual winter war at which they ride rams and goats. This fantastical idea refused to disappear softly. Although it lost some significant favor in the next few hundred years, it was still a somewhat common belief, at least into the 1300s, when it's mentioned in the travels of Sir John Mandeville, the most popular travel guide of the Dark Ages, which is exactly as reliable as it sounds like it would be. But that's just cranes. Even the Greeks didn't have enough mythical races on hand to explain the absence of every species of bird that migrates. They didn't have an answer for all the rest. And when the Greeks didn't have an answer for something, or even when they did, that meant it was time for Aristotle to poke his obnoxious head in. And, oh, Don't get me wrong. Aristotle was great. He's, he's one of the fathers of philosophy and science. He's a student of Plato, teacher of Alexander. Aristotle's thoughts on empiricism and formal logic, not to mention ethics and government, are, are among the most beautiful, brilliant, and enduring notions in human history. But the guy could not stop. He comes up with theories for everything he sees or hears or even just thinks of, and a lot of it is embarrassing. The brain's function is to air condition the body. How low testicles hang determine the pitch of your voice. It just stop, Aristotle. Just you're making it hard to love you with how embarrassing you are. On our subject, Aristotle had two main answers, one of which is actually pretty brilliant. He reckoned that some birds transformed their shape, size, and plumage to adjust to the changes in weather and foliage. So, red starts metamorphosed into robins, garden warblers into blackcaps, etc. Which it seems like a weird conclusion to draw, unless you're living your whole life around ancient Greece, where European robins fly to in the winter right around the same time as red starts push off for sub-Saharan Africa. See? That's actually pretty brilliant reasoning. Aristotle's other idea on the matter is far less fun, and it is the one, unfortunately, that persists the longest. For all the birds that came and went without having some other species coming and winting at the opposite times, Aristotle says they're just hibernating. Most birds, he said, must tuck themselves into little holes and cliffsides or hills and snuggle away the winter months in slumber. But swallows, in particular, he reasons, 
dive down into lakes and ponds and rivers and dig themselves into the muddy bottoms where they freeze, thawing in the spring. Aristotle's hibernation idea catches a strong tailwind, in part probably because hibernation is something people know about. Bears and bats and skunks, snakes, bees, groundhogs, lots of things hibernate. Why not birds? But part of the reason this idea persists for, and it persists for pretty much 2,000 years, it must come down to deference to Aristotle, like humors and the four elements and ether. If Aristotle said it, most European thinkers assumed it was true, even if they've never seen a single piece of evidence to suggest it. But people did see swallows wintering in lake beds, or at least they heard about seeing them. In 1555, the Swedish Archbishop Olus Magnus writes in his influential book History and Nature of the Northern Peoples about fishermen pulling up nets of hibernating swallows. Okay, so here's the gold. Swallows burying themselves underwater and cranes fighting imaginary miniature men is all fine and good, but it's in the late 12th century that this stuff gets really great. Because it's then that the Archbishop of Brecon, Gerald of Wales, has his incredible epiphany. And it is deliciously wrong. Uh, Gerald, can I call him Jerry? Jerry noticed a couple of things. First of all, he noticed that just before all the geese disappeared, they could be found congregating near lakes and rivers. Okay. Secondly... He noticed that many of these geese congregated on fallen tree branches, which, I guess so, if you take a really elastic definition of many. Thirdly, he saw that when those tree limbs got waterlogged, these interesting-looking barnacles grew on them. And by interesting, I mean vaguely looking like the neck and head of a goose. So Jerry concludes, yeah, you're right. That thing you're thinking that he couldn't possibly have concluded because of how ridiculous it sounds? You're right. That's exactly what he concluded. Geese transform into barnacles. More than that, since he's never seen a goose egg or nest, he figured that not only do geese transform into these barnacles, but that they are barnacles. Born that way. The geese aren't even actually birds at all, but crustaceans. Jerry published this screwy bunch of nonsense at the tail end of the 1100s, and people reading it obviously think, of course. They eat this flippity gibbet up with a knife and fork, literally. Since the archdeacon had declared geese to be shellfish, that meant that good Catholics could eat goose during Lent and on Fridays. Maybe that was all the incentive people needed to take Jerry at his word, because this one really catches fire. This isn't some oddball, cockamamie thing somebody shouted on a street corner. William Turner, one of the fathers of ornithology, and John Gerard, among the most influential herbalists in history, are both still saying geese are barnacles into the early 17th century. Eventually, the Pope has to intervene in order to get people to stop eating goose on fast days. But, importantly, he doesn't say Jerry is wrong either. He says that since the barnacles act so much like birds, they ought to be treated as if they are. Even today, the bird and mollusk species Jerry observed are known, respectively, as the barnacle goose and the goose barnacle. 
At the turn of the 18th century, every idea, from Jerry to Aristotle, was embraced simultaneously in a confused patchwork of aggressive inanity. But the tide was shifting. With the Enlightenment upon Europe, an English minister and natural philosopher sat down to straighten out the issue once and for all. Charles Morton read accounts from sailors and travelers, observed the movements and flocking of various bird species, and realized swallows weren't burying themselves in lake beds, and geese weren't turning into barnacles. They were escaping the cold and seeking food. They were migrating to the moon. So close, Chuck. So close. Morton's argument is well-reasoned and somehow manages to be both closer to correct and more hideously wrong than all the preceding theories. Part of the problem certainly stemmed from the widely held belief that all heavenly bodies must contain life. Why would God have created huge planets and moons and stars only to leave them barren? And Morton noticed that at night he sometimes saw birds flying down from in front of the moon. He figured that once they flew out of Earth's gravitational pull, they could reach speeds of about 125 miles per hour, reaching the moon in two months or so, sleeping most of the way. This is 1703, and the best theory we've got is they go to the moon. That's a lie, of course. It's not that nobody had thought that maybe birds fly closer to the equator in winter and away in summer. But it was just an idea. An idea that lacked the gravitas of Aristotle or the blessing of the church or the trenchant reasoning of a well-intentioned 18th century natural philosopher. Are you wondering? Do you want to know? When we figured it out, you want to make a guess first? I'm going to give you a second to make a guess first. Just a year. Pick one. Okay. Ready? 18... 1822. The United States had already fought two wars. Electricity is being crudely channeled. The Watt steam engine is in common use. It takes until a year after Napoleon dies for someone to work out that birds fly south. And who finally figures it out? We don't know. We have the full name of the moon guy and the lake bed guy, but the closest we have for the real answer is one word. File storage. On May 21st, 1822, in Mecklenburg, Germany, a man, we don't know his name, he woke up early. He dressed for wet and cold. He cleaned and prepared his gun. He hiked out to a gully by a pond and made a blind there where he sat still, silent, and patient for hours. And then he heard it. The rattling call of his quarry. Our hunter raises his gun, cocks his hammer, takes aim, and fires. Smoke from his muzzle almost obscures the faint, flapping fall of a marvelous, wide-winged white figure tumbling earthwise like an angel-found sin. Our hunter rises slowly and walks across a field on the lookout for his kill, a white stork. But when he finds it, there's a surprise. The stork he just killed 
had been shot before him, impaled with an arrow still stuck clean through his breast, up his neck, and out just beside his ear. If you stand the bird up, it looks almost like it's carrying an arrowhead flag high above its crown. Filestorch, German for arrow stork. I don't know what this hunter thought. If it seemed funny to him, or maybe it was a bad omen, a curiosity, maybe. But whatever the instinct was, he took his unusual catch to the University of Rostock, where the faculty quickly realized that the arrow had come from sub-Saharan Africa. This stork had been shot by an arrow somewhere around Kenya and had flown with the spring, arrow attached, all the way north to Germany, only to be shot again, this time by a blunderbuss. But in so doing, the file storch... Do you mind if I call him Phil? Phil gave us the knowledge that historians, deacons, ministers, scientists, and fucking Aristotle had failed to. On this show, we're going to learn about a lot of people who gave up years of their lives, their health, their families, and their fortunes, trying, often in vain, to provide answers for the rest of us. But only one flew 4,000 miles with a foot-long arrow through its chest. That's why I'm making Phil our mascot. I hope you'll subscribe and follow us as we try to do him justice. Until then... Out of the city in a garden, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. <laughs>